Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joel Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Live Radio, 103.9 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening, where we are set to continue our exploration into this very dramatic second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, a book I think that we are all familiar with. But as I have said on many other occasions, you can read a narrative, or for that matter, a whole book, time and time and time again in sacred scripture and always get something new out of it, right? You know, I was recently asked a question about that, and I said, hey, uh, the reason why this happens is because ultimately, for every time we read a sacred text, we are in a different place with God. So as we are in a different place with God, we are going to receive what we are reading differently, huh? And certainly this is the case with the book of Exodus, There are so many levels to this book. Not only do you have the historical and literal level, but also the very rich theological and moral level, and that alone allows us to engage the text and its richness, I think, in a whole new way. So what we have been doing here is going through this book verse by verse, and we are really in the middle of one of the more exciting episodes in the whole book, and that is uh, the Ten Plagues. Huh? So last week, we started our discussion on the Ten Plagues. We left off on the Fifth Plague. Among other things, we were hitting a key point that often, I think, goes overlooked. And that is how the Ten Plagues are not only a judgment of death and destruction on the Egyptians, but also on the Egyptian gods, right? For example, we see the Nile turning into blood as a judgment upon Hapi, the god of the Nile inundation. In the plague of the frogs, we see God assert his supremacy over Haket, the false goddess depicted as what but a frog. All throughout the ten plagues, as we will continue to see, we read God calling out the gods for what they are. And my dear friends, that is false. They are false gods. So with that, let us pick up with the fifth plague, the livestock killed. Now, the fifth plague was one that was directed against, again, the livestock of the Egyptians, but which did not affect the cattle of the Israelites. Uh, Speculations as to what the cause of the death was are simply that speculation. By whatever means, my friends, God virtually wiped out the cattle of the Egyptians, and Since wealth was measured largely in terms of the cattle in Egypt, this was primarily to be seen as what but an economic disaster, right? Now, also, in light of what we were just discussing, God continues to show his supremacy over the false gods of Egypt. The god Apis, or Ray, was represented as a bull. The bull was a very sacred animal in the lore of Egypt. Egyptian mythology in the pantheon of Egyptian mythology. Also, the goddess of love, beauty, and joy, Hathor, was represented as a cow. Hathor was depicted in the form of a woman with 
of the head or sometimes only the horns of a cow. Now, in the sixth plague, we have boils. As many Egyptian historians note, here again, we have the complete and utter discredit of the Egyptian gods. In this case, I think we can identify three gods as being put to shame, maybe most notably Sekhmet, a a lion-headed goddess who had alleged power over disease. Then there was also uh, Sunu, the pestilence god, and Isis, the goddess of healing. So with the plague boils, you have three gods being called out. Now, what else here? Well, what does sacred scripture record? But once again, the magicians are not only unable to rid the land of Egypt of the boils, they themselves are also so afflicted, they cannot even show up to stand before Moses. All right, how about this seventh plague? In the seventh plague, we have a storm of thunder and heavy hail. Why don't we go ahead and read some of these verses. Chapter 9, let's go here. I'm scrolling down, verse 18. Behold, tomorrow about this time, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Wow. Until the day it was founded until now. So this is clearly an unprecedented event. This plague begins the third and final trilogy of plagues. And by that I mean you have uh, the seventh plague beginning with the warning that unless Pharaoh releases the Israelites, God will send the full force of his plagues against Pharaoh in Egypt. In verses uh, 15 to 17, we read, For by now I could have put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose have I let you live, to show you my power so that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. And so in the words, my power, we are reminded that the plagues are what but magnificent displays of divine might. They bring low the pride of Egypt, even as they lift high the name of Yahweh in the sight of the nations. And on the other hand, what you have is Pharaoh's life being spared on account of this greater divine purpose, even though, of course, God, the absolute Lord over life and death, could have long since destroyed him. Here, my friends, we ought to ask, I think, some important questions. How do we exalt ourselves over and above all people? How do we put our name above every other name? How do we draw attention to ourselves? Do we draw attention to ourselves? We might say something like, okay, you've shared what you've wanted to share, but now listen to what I have to share, right? How do we put our name above every other name within our circle, right? Is someone complaining of a headache and you have to outdo that headache with your fever, letting your inner circle know about your fever, putting the spotlight on you? Has someone talked about their achievements and, and before they can even finish talking about their achievement, you want to talk about your achievements and successes? Hmm? How do we put our name above every other name? 
This is what God is calling out here again in this plague, and he continues to do so in the other plagues, but specifically, certainly he does so in these verses. So returning to this narrative, we read that if Pharaoh persists in his hardness of heart, things will get considerably worse. By the way, my friends, what is meant by this phrase, hardness of heart? I think that's a question that comes up quite a bit. If you were to go online and were to Google that, I'm sure you'd get all sorts of conversations on the matter. Well, as I typically like to do, I like to lean into the church fathers, those first Christian thinkers, and they, and I surmise here, say, God did not harden his heart necessarily by being the efficient cause of it, but by permitting it, and by withdrawing grace from, in this case, of course, Pharaoh, in punishment of his malice. You know, sometimes in our own life, God allows a hardness of heart over time for us to eventually come to our senses. Maybe you are someone who was closely following God, and over time you began, you began to distance yourself from God to the point where you were no longer recognizing Him in your daily affairs. This might be seen in, I don't know, something like the season of going to Mass, and maybe even for that matter, the general season of prayer. And also, maybe you suddenly find yourself supporting things that you would not normally support. Then, then you come to your senses. And what was once a hardened heart has now become soft. And you only come to your senses because of the chasm between the person you had become versus the person you were in God. Okay? All right, now we also read in the plagues of thunder and hail some important verses that come to us. Let's see here from verses 27 to 34. There we read, Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. Mm, That's interesting. (laughs) The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Entreat the Lord, for there has been enough of this thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord. Verse 31, the flax and the barley were ruined, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bud. But the wheat and the spelt were not ruined, for they are late in coming up. Verse 33, So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the sons of Israel go, as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Wow. So in verse 27, we have this phrase, I have sinned, an empty admission of guilt. You see, Pharaoh is interested not in forgiveness, but in respite from the plagues bearing down on his country. What are we to draw from this? I think it's this. If our contrition is not imbued with genuine and authentic faith, 
then our contrition will be empty. You see, my friends, faith is a response to who you believe in. This is why you have heard me say again and again and again, when you go into the Old Testament and you define the Hebrew vision of faith, you don't really ever get faith per se in as much as faithfulness. That translates to Hebrew. Faithfulness, it's a firm response, responsive listening. This is what Paul translates in Romans chapter 1, verse 5, and 16, verse 26. The Greek is pistis, huh? This trust, this responsive listening. His contrition lacks faith. Okay? All right. What about this eighth plague, the plague of locusts? So the previous plague of the thunderstorm had destroyed the flax and barley crops, but what did I read? The wheat and spelt crops were not destroyed because they had matured later. The locusts indeed would wipe out the wheat and the spelt crops. How drastic was this plague? Well, in the opening verses of chapter 10, we read that God would give the Israelites something to tell their grandchildren about. Well, that's the first time we heard that phrase, right? I mean, imagine if you're an Egyptian. Think about all the plagues we have already talked about. Shoot, the first plague would have been enough for me. A body of water turning into blood, that's worth telling your grandchildren about. What's the point, Moses? Why would you say that in these verses? Well, I think the point is, if you thought what was once grave was grave, you ain't seen nothing yet. (laughs) When Moses foretold the coming of the locusts on the next day, you better believe Pharaoh's officials pled with the king to let the Israelites go. Egypt, the officials protested, was in ruin. I think it should not take much to imagine how the Egyptian officials must have been pleading with the Pharaoh. Goodness gracious, master, why incur any further disasters? Look at our nation. Look at our country. So how does Pharaoh respond? Well, the Pharaoh offered to let the men go, but not the women, right? But not the women. So he drives Moses and Aaron out of his presence. And as we read in verses 16 to 20, when the plague struck Egypt, Pharaoh confessed that he had sinned against God and against the Israelites. He asked Moses for forgiveness and he prayed the plague to be removed. And when the plague was removed, guess what? Pharaoh returned to his old ways and would not let Israel go. Now, what's interesting here is that we have the very specific language of Pharaoh admitting to forgive. But clearly what we see here is that God's powerful love has yet to invade his heart through and through, and so he still reverts to his old ways. Again, another lesson for us. God's love must invade our heart through and through. When this happens, does God release this love of forgiveness in our hearts. Forgiveness is existential. You can't say, I forgive you, but not mean it. Why? Because you will see it in the language of, of your body. 
I have worked with a number of different folks, specifically in some cases married couples, who have had some real tough roads. One saying to the other, I forgive you, yet when the other is in their presence, they can hardly stand to be in their presence. You see, it's existential. Others say, well, I forgive you, and I forgive you by not thinking about you. No, that doesn't work. Don't confuse forgiveness with indifference. Let me say that again, my friends. Any psychologist will tell you, do not confuse forgiveness with indifference. A grudge will fester, okay? So be mindful of that. Now, how about this ninth plague of darkness? As we read in the book of Exodus, chapter 10, the ninth plague was that of a darkness so intense that it produced a dread, an absolute unequivocal dread in the hearts of the Egyptians. For three days, the Egyptians and the Israelites were confined to their homes. What was the difference? Well, for the Egyptians, darkness. For the Israelites, light. And here again, we have more false gods turned on their head. In this affliction, no doubt, the sun god Re, R-E, was targeted. Oh, by the way, of whom the Pharaoh himself was represented. You see this kind of escalation of gravity, huh? Re, R-E, was responsible for providing sunlight. Ray was also responsible for providing warmth and productivity. We can also identify other gods as being called out, including Oris, who was associated with the sun, also Nut, and Ut, the goddess of the sky, certainly would have been humiliated by this plague. Now, the ninth plague, like the third and the sixth plagues, came upon the Egyptians without warning, which would have given them no opportunity to prepare for the disaster, either physically or psychologically. By the way, my friends, I'm looking at my Bible and the footnotes. The quote, complete blackout for three days, uh, very well could have been not only the blockage of the sun, but uh, potentially a sandstorm that would have made it impossible to see just a couple feet in front of you. I think that's relevant as we read this text to just get a deeper appreciation of what it was, in fact, that both the Egyptians and the Israelites had to deal with. Now, what's interesting about this plague is Moses' response to Pharaoh's dictate. If you were to go to chapter 10, verses 24 to 29, we read, Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go serve the Lord, your children also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our cattle also must, listen to Moses, must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take heed to yourself. Never see my face again, for in the day you see my face you shall die. Moses said, As you say, 
I will not see your face again. With what we must serve, Moses says. The Ignatius Catholic Study Bible, I think, highlights for us here a very important point. That Moses understands, my friends, that Yahweh must dictate the rites and requirements of liturgy. You see, divine worship is something determined by divine revelation, not by the suggestions of human imagination. All right, I did want to close with one final reflection. Um, something we should take stock in, and this is really more of a larger point to the much wider discussion on the ten plagues. We need to be careful to assume that all calamity is the result of our sin and evidence of God's judgment. Uh, Do we need to look any further than Job? Job's adversity, as outlined in the book of Job, was not necessarily the result of Job's sin, right? But a means of Job's growth in his walk with God. In addition, Job's affliction was a teaching tool for Satan, who cannot fathom why a saint would continue to worship God when it's not profitable, but painful to do so. The plagues, my friends, indeed were the judgment of God upon the Egyptians. But notice that God clearly identified them as such. The Egyptians may not have chosen to believe it, but God was clearly judging the gods of Egypt and those who would worship them. When God's judgment comes upon men, he will let them know what is happening and why. When God is disciplining one of his chosen ones, one of his saints, he will be sure to let that saint know what is going on. We need not agonize searching for hidden sin per se when calamity falls upon us, but in taking a step back, recognize that maybe God is chastening us. What do we read in sacred scripture? But that God chastens those whom he loves. The series of texts we have been talking about, yes, reminds us of the seriousness of sin. God takes man's sin very seriously. The severity of the plagues is the measure of how seriously God took the sin of the Egyptians. It is not just the sin of the Egyptians, though, that God abhors. He hates our sin just as much as that of the pagans. Sin is sin. And why do I say that? Because I think today among Christians, certainly among Catholics, (laughs) there is a tendency to minimize sin. And this is dangerous. This is dangerous. What else here? Well, the judgment of God on sin is something which false religionists seek to deny. Judgment is not something which men would choose to believe, nor a subject which men like to dwell upon. It's interesting, if you're to go to the second epistle, Peter's second epistle, what do we read? Second Peter 3, verses 3 to 4, First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of our creation. Huh. Judgment is not a popular subject, and thus the plagues themselves of God against Egypt are not popular reading, huh? (laughs) 
Yeah, earlier I was talking about the Ten Plagues as a very recognizable and notable series of episodes in the book of Exodus. But we don't like to talk about it very often, other than whether or not it actually happened. And, and maybe one of the reasons we don't like to talk about it is because then we have to talk about the judgment of God. We have to confront our own sin. But this, my friends, is a very important point and one that I will close on. We have to confront our own sin. John, in his first epistle, in the opening chapter of his epistle, says, you are a fool if you do not think you sin. You have no truth inside of you if you think you do not sin. His point is quite simply this. If God is going to abide in us, then we need to extract all of those lies and make room for God, who is absolute truth, right? All right. As we wrap up our discussion this evening, I just want to prepare you for our discussion next week. Maybe by reading chapters 11 and 12, getting into any of those commentaries that you have, any other secondary reads you might have on the book of Exodus and specifically on the Passover. I very much look forward to next week. Exodus chapter 11 and 12, specifically chapter 12, is one of my favorite chapters in in the whole Old Testament. So I very much look forward to that. All right, let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you.